0: I don't know what most white people in this country feel, but I can only include what they feel from the state of their
1: institutions. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children on some idealism which you assure me exists
0: in America, which I have never seen.
2: Welcome back to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts, Katina and Garrett. In celebration of Black History Month, we will be releasing new episodes every Wednesday in the month of February. So be on the lookout for twice the content this month. Today's topic is politics with Justin Gibney. Justin is an attorney and political strategist in Atlanta, Georgia. He's also the co-founder and president of the AND campaign. Justin gives us a little bit of history about our two-party system. We talk about how we can agree and disagree with people politically and respect their opinion. We discuss several ideologies of each party and address what the average person would even begin with in regards to politics outside of a major primary election we hope you enjoy the discussion.
1: All right, Justin. So, thanks so much for joining us and we just we're just really excited about diving into a combo with you. And I always have I always ask any guest that comes on to the podcast, my first question is who is Justin Gibney? Because people will identify you as this voice and you know, by your tweets, by your post, by the sound sound bites, but they never really dive into who the person is. And you're a human being, you're an image bearer, you got a life, you have a family. But but who are you? Who is Justin Gibney?
3: Yeah, um, I'm a Christian, uh, an ordained minister, uh, a husband uh, to my wife, Summer, uh, a father to three boys, uh, three young boys. Um And someone who really just has a a passion for the intersection between faith and politics, Um, an attorney, a former college football player, uh, and someone who's just trying to learn to be a better disciple.
1: Wow, that's good. Thank you for sharing all of that. And so many times people just don't know that people come with layers. They didn't just wake up and decide that they're going to do whatever they're doing. That There's history. Um, I love that. Thanks for sharing that.
2: Okay, Justin, first question for you. I would love to know, maybe there's a quick way to do this and maybe there's not, but I'd love to know for our listeners, just, you know, we're in a two-party, mainly a two-party system here. Maybe you can give us a quick kind of catch up on how we got to a two-party system and maybe like some of the high points of the historical, I know that there was a time where Kind of the parties like realigned and like Democrats were Republicans and the Republicans were Democrats, something like that. But maybe can you hit high points of maybe how we got to a two party system?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, if you read the Federalist Papers, which are papers that some of the um, founders wrote anonymously, uh, they warn against parties. They warn against factual factions. Uh, and, and all the bad things that can come with people kind of getting in groups and sticking with those groups. So it you know, it doesn't come from the Constitution. It's not something that even some of the founders wanted, although I think some of them felt that it was inevitable. So from the, the beginning, this has been a uh, America's has been a, its politics has been a two- party system. Now the, the parties have changed uh, here and there, but there have always been two parties. One of the biggest and maybe most recent changes is when you, you know you had Democrats and Republicans, but the you know obviously the Republican Party was the the party of Lincoln, um, you know was instrumental in 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 uh, freeing the slaves, um, and so many of southern many Southerners uh, and pro segregationists were Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, that changed um, partially. It started to change with uh, uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson and and you know the stances that he took on on. Um, segregation but then it continued to change where those Dixocrats who were democrats that were southerners would eventually uh become republicans and so that's a longer story part of it haven't have had to do with uh the first george bush and all that but that's probably one of the biggest changes from so when people you know when people talk about well the republicans are the one that freed that freed the slaves it's 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 kind of ahistorical because a lot of the folks who were segregationists were actually are actually Republicans, you know, those folks switch to the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I said before, I think, you know, I'm one of those people who who would love to see a third party. I think it's, it's been a two party system for a long time. I, I would love to see that change. But even within the two parties, I'd like to see two strong parties that are trying to do the right thing. And we're just away from that, uh, probably on both sides right now.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing, even just kind of like building out a little framework behind a lot of what you just said is there's not some kind of like pure central ideal represented on each side that is like a through line that connects all the dots of what Republicans believe and Democrats believe. But actually I think it's more helpful to see that the parties themselves are these pragmatic alliances of these varying disparate worldly interest groups that are kind of teaming up together to try to get to 51% of the vote because whoever gets to 51% in our system has all the power. And so like when I was younger I kind of thought of it as like if I if my party that I grew up Republican and I was like just kind of assumed like I don't I, I can't question any of the things in this Republican ideology because they're all coming from the same source of authority. But really when you start to realize like no there's there's it's not like God said one party is right or wrong, but you start to realize these are like alliances of a bunch of interest groups that are like working together to get to a majority and they shift over time. They realign over time. And like what you're saying, under Nixon, there was like this realignment that happened and a bunch of Democrats and uh, Strom Thurmond left the, the Democrat party and went to the Republican party beca- uh, over the issue of race and segregation. And so there's been like realignments through history. And if you look at the Republican-Democrat platforms 100 years ago, they have nothing to do with the platforms of today. The things they cared about then aren't the things we care about now. But it's just this constantly recalibrating bubble of interest groups. And so then as a Christian, we shouldn't be anchored to either platform. (laughs) Like we shouldn't be just buying in wholesale to either platform unquestioningly, because why would we expect one set of worldly interest groups to just be right about everything?
3: Yeah, I I think you make a good point. Uh, I mean, um, you said early on kind of talk about being pragmatic, and that's really uh, what it's about, and we have to keep that in mind. There are always fault lines and potential for realignment within the parties they're not as consistent and, and cogent as we kind of make them out to be. We, we kind of romanticize what they do and what, what they can accomplish. But really at the end of the day, it's about interest, it's about influence, it's about money. And sometimes it's, it's about things that, a lot of the things that you don't see behind the scenes that you would never want to follow a party kind of blindly if you knew kind of what happens behind the scenes. So one thing that I've been telling Christians is, is, is to your point that, you know, there's this assumption that we should find our identity in, in these parties that when somebody says that they're a Democrat or a Republican, they're really telling you a lot about their identity. When I don't think for Christians, that should be the case. Uh, I think Christians should be a little more shrewd and calculating when it comes to these parties and really only use them as tools. Um, maybe you align with the Republicans more, maybe you align with the Democrats more, or maybe you're with one or the other because it best serves, you know, your interests at that moment. I don't think we should be investing kind of all this uh, emotional uh, capital or, or all our emotions into a party. Use them to get uh, good work done. Uh, and if they're wrong, you correct them. If they're right, then you encourage and incentivize the things that they're doing that are right. But there has to be a, a, a distance between your identity, your public witness and uh, the party.
1: Well, and this is my struggle because I, with with American Christianity with democracy, it's, it's, it's like with the American church, we're building a kingdom on earth. And if we were to compare the body of Christ to the Acts church, or even God's chosen people in during the, you know, the Old Testament church, the I mean, the Old Testament scriptures, there is nothing l- quite like what we are living out right now, where a body, like the people of God are are t- trying to take their kingdom by force on earth. I mean, you see the scriptures that talk about, you know, loving your neighbor and, you know, considering the sojourner, caring for the widow and the, and the orphan. You see the prophets continue to call the people to engage in social justice, like throughout the scriptures. Care Engaging, for the poor. Yeah, care for the poor, the marginalized. And the American church, I feel like, The American church is like setting itself up for us to be, we want to be persecuted so bad. We want to be like, oh, they're not saying Merry Christmas, you know, in Starbucks or Target. Like we want to be persecuted so bad. But it's like we're setting the stage for that persecution to happen because we're persecuting unbelievers when we're called to, you know, love our neighbors and live out, like, live out our faith. And like you said, not be so dependent on politics that it defines us. Can you speak to that?
3: Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, just to start with what you said, you know, the imperative, the justice imperative in the Bible is so clear. I, and I've said this before, I think it's it's almost biblical illiteracy. Yeah. Not to see the imperative that's laid down when it comes to justice in a social context or so whether you want to call it social justice or whatever, you know whatever makes you feel good to call it it's very clear in the bible and in fact you look at amos you look at isaiah jeremiah yes. they present a lack of social justice they present they present god's people not doing justice in the social context really as a breach of covenant yes right i mean when you look in the bible it's not just okay sexual immorality and those things that that god punishes and threatens to punish for he's threatening to punish for um partiality in the courts yes or how you how you tr- treat the poor so to to take that out of the Bible to 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 read that out of the Bible is is really unfortunate and the American church has done that yes and one of the things that allows you to kind of erase parts of the Bible or or not pay attention to how you're treating others is if you yourself make yourself the victim right uh, when people get attacked in general whether're being corrected or anything else one of the main things we do sometimes is we become the victim no you're hurting me you're doing this to me and it allows me to cover up um what I may be doing to others and what I want to ignore from my own behavior so Christians really do have to, to watch out for that that's something that happens and that's not to say that there aren't some um you know I think religious liberty is a serious issue I think yes. there are some threats to religious liberty
1: absolutely but we
3: have to understand that you know I, th- I feel like when we see our maker he, you know it's not going to be job well done you did everything that you could do for your own interest it's going to be what What did you do for others and how did you care about, you know, how did you care about others? And so we have to make sure that our whole public witness is not just about Christian self-interest, right? It's not just about what we can do and how we can protect ourselves. Are those, those those can be considerations. Right. But it has to be about how we can love and, and help others as well.
1: Well, and so the other thing is, I know you, you speak into the issue of the sanctity of life. And I know that it it can be really murky because Republicans typically will be like, well, how could you be a Democrat? You can't be a Christian if you're a Democrat. What about, you know, black babies and black women aborting black babies at this alarming rate? And no one talks about the disparities that got us to where we are. And so I love how you've, you know, kind of ministered and spoken to that. There's a tension there for sure. Can you talk about that?
3: Sure. I I think... Christians have to be able to live in tension. Yes. I think we like to choose instead of we like to avoid attention by by jumping on one side or another. So we have a tendency to say, you know, this is attention, this is hard for me. So I'm gonna jump on one side completely and ignore the other. And that happens, I think, quite a bit when it comes to the abortion conversation. Yeah. The end campaign talks a lot about how Christians sometimes have to reframe the questions that are presented to us. Yeah. Um, as an attorney, uh, Katina, I could ask you a question and know that there are only two wrong answers based on how I asked you the question. Right. And so you have to be smart enough. And geez, we see Jesus doing this to actually reframe the question. When we hear, you know, when we're presented with the conversation about abortion, sometimes it's either are you for the child or are you for women? Right. right. Uh, do, do you care about life or do you care about women's health? Well, that's a false question. Right. right. Uh, there is a tension there and it's a, it's a tough conversation to have. But we have to stand in at that tension and say, no, I'm for the unborn and I'm for women. And, and I don't have to jump completely to one side or the other to avoid that real tension. Because if you if you look at it, you do have to look at the disparities that would make a, that would put a woman in a situation where she, she has a crisis pregnancy and doesn't feel like she has the support that she would need not to live a miserable life you know, and 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 put a child in a situation where they're living a miserable life, that's not always an easy decision to make. Right. And if we jump on the right side of the tension to ignore that whole conversation, we're missing a huge part of why why women are in that situation. But at the same time, when you look at how the left discusses it, they've completely taken the child out of the conversation to yes. where it doesn't even exist. It's yeah. not even a consideration in how you evaluate what these policies should look like. And it is, it's, it, it's, really scary the thing the places that you can go once you've done that christians again have to have to be in the middle of that tension and say no it can be both right we're talking about and it can be it can be both of those it doesn't make it easy for me but i've got to deal with the reality and not erase one reality to make my narrative uh more
1: clean. Well, and it's, I'm from Memphis originally. I'm from Orange Mound, Memphis, Tennessee. I'm from the hood. Okay. And most women, like when we're talking about the socioeconomics of women who would have, have an abortion or the demographic of women who would have an abortion, we know like all the history, with Planned Parenthood and all of that. But most women who are in that situation, they are not thinking about the politics of it. They're thinking about food deserts, you know, not having food, they're thinking about provision. They're thinking about how they make way less money. They're not thinking about oh, I need reproductive justice. You know, they're, they're not thinking about the left's ideology of a woman's right to do all these things. They're 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 just thinking about how they're going to live. You know, like the widow who said, you know, I'm gonna take this little bit of food and me and my my kid we're gonna eat it and die that that's what that's what they're thinking about and so you know the politis- politicalization of, and I'm speaking specifically for black women because it's our. every time I talk to a white brother or sister who claims to want to engage in the conversation of justice, I get this on a regular basis. Katina, you know, I just really want to pick your brain. I want to go to coffee. I want to have this conversation. And then you engage in the conversation lovingly as a Christian in truth. The first thing they do is gaslight you know, abortion. The same with and I, I you know, I'm real careful about this whole both sides conversation, you know, the, the whole idea of both sides, because I think that there there one side is there's one side that's really doing a lot more damage. But then there are, are people who are like a woman should to be able to do anything she wants, however she wants, and and in general a human should be able to do whatever they want. However, yes, my heart is for my heart is for the woman, what it does to her body, what it does to her mind, the fact that she has to be put in that position to make that choice. My compassion is for everyday women that I, you know, grew up being around, seeing, going to church with, girls getting pregnant at 12, at 12 years old, our neighborhoods being—I remember growing up, white men used to go through our neighborhoods, like drive around. I, I have—like at 13, 12 years old, I was almost kidnapped by a white man driving around our neighborhood while we're walking to school trying to snatch up black girls. There's 75,000 black girls and women missing right now. Like, there's there's no conversation about the devaluing of black women and black girls and how there's no conversation about three out of, you know, four uh, black girls are molested several times oftentimes before they're 18. And I'm just really passionate about this because, like I said, so many times you know there's the, this politi- politicalization but people who are faced with that decision they're not thinking about any of the thi- any of the politics they're literally thinking about making it to the next day can you speak to that because so many of our listeners that's where they go that's that's a that's that's where they that's where their their minds immediately jump to when they're trying to argue with, with us about you know how can we be Christian and 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 having this podcast and saying the things that we say?
3: Yeah, you make some excellent points. Uh, I think there's a, there's a few things there. One is starting to see the world through a partisan or an ideological lens, mm-hmm. where when you look at a person who's struggling, you look at a person who are going through some of the things that you mentioned, you see a political abstraction rather than a person who's really suffering, looking for a, a better way. Yes, um, and. That We just can't do that. We have to see people. We have to put skin on policy. Many of the ways that the fact of the matter is we handle this through policy in some ways. Right. I mean, the church, there's things the church can do. We can do things outside of policy. But policy is a robust way to handle these things. But we can't just see it through a partisan or ideological lens. We have to really understand what people are going through. And that's why you need leaders who who take the time to, to empathize and understand what, what folks are seeing just from a, like you said, just from a practical standpoint, a day-to-day survival standpoint, not not from, you know, where's the political capital and how is this going to affect me when I try to get reelected, but what do people need in the moment and how can we encourage and incentivize the right things? Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think you make an excellent point there. And then you talk about people coming to a conversation, maybe even with the intent of, of listening and doing it the right way, but we're still wanting to win that conversation or get their, get their message in before they really listen. Right. And so we have to be able to go into conversations and not feel like we're going to persuade the person we're talking to every time. Sometimes you just got to listen to what people have to say, right? Because we all know that when you have a point that you want to get across, you don't do, you don't listen so well in, in that instance. Mm-hmm. And uh, especially when it comes to majority Christians hearing out what's going on in the black community, yeah. it's so easy to talk about the family it's so easy to talk about abortion but as one of my my good friends put it the fact that there is even a black family after the history of what this country has done Come is on. amazing mm. a miracle the semblance of a family when everything was set up to tear that down that's amazing uh yes. and so to sit back and to be so critical as if you you know you've solved all our problems and we just don't know you know if we, If we just had the knowledge that you had to, to hold our families together and uh, not have abortions, well, there's a lot more history that goes into that. And there needs to be a bit of humility there and, and grace there. Because but for uh, what what Jesus has done for all of us in Jesus' grace, we could all be in any situation. Yes. Right? So there's a hubris in, in thinking that you're so holy or there's something that you know better than everybody else— that kept you out of that situation. No, it's God that kept you out of that situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we, we need to think of that a little bit differently when we address people.
0: Yeah. I think on the right, just in general, there's like a tendency to try to solve problems through criminalization. Yes. And so like you see that with the drug war and that from a Christian perspective, is it sin to do drugs? I think so. Paul says we shouldn't be controlled by anything. And yet we've seen how devastating it is to try to solve the problem only through criminalization and not through extending loving help. And so with abortion, I see the same thing happening where the entire solution on the right is held to be criminalization. And yet there's nothing done to actually solve the underlying problems behind abortion. So for instance, women who are in poverty have 12 times more abortion, like 12 times higher rate of abortion than women who are at two times the poverty level. So like allowing poverty to remain unaddressed is driving Yes. half of the abortion, more than half of the abortions that happened just from that 10% of the poorest women in America. And so if we more comprehensively, and also the, the number one reason given by women who are having an abortion as to why they did it when polled is because they can't afford another child. And so like, we actually could work together to solve that problem. I think if Democrats and Republicans got together, both sides according to the least what they say, would be like, yeah, if we can, we can actually like find some common ground to solve that, if we can address some of the underlying things. And one, one other thing is contraceptives reduce the abortion rate. I read a study that they reduce the abortion rate free contraceptives by something like 85%. And so I think a lot of steps that could be taken to make abortion obsolete um, or, or approach obsolescence dramatically reduce the abortion rate and extend, like, help and love, and that those need to be part of the conversation, not just criminalization.
3: Yeah, so you make a good point, and I think there's some moves uh, to do some of those things, especially when you're talking about the child poverty rate. So if you look at um, Biden's recent um, COVID plan, uh, it talks a lot about that they're trying to, you know, push through uh, a budget reconciliation right now. It talks a lot about cutting child poverty in half. That's going to indirectly have an impact on what's going on with the whole abortion conversation and how the desperation that people feel who are in those uh, situations. You also on the other end, though, you have Mitt Romney, who has suggested who recently, uh, I think yesterday or the day before, came up with a plan to do something similar to, mm-hmm. to give money to families so that they have more to survive these, yeah. these instances. We, we have to do that. And that's we talk a lot about with the ANK campaign as well, not putting an issue uh, kind of in isolation. Right. Not not putting it in a vacuum, because when you put abortion in the vacuum, you actually can't even solve that particular problem as well as you would want to, because you're not looking at all the other factors that impact that particular issue. All right. So it actually hurts you to put it within a vacuum. But I think I do think we have to realize at the same time. So here's the tension. Right. Yeah. The tension is and this is even with myself and my past history. There are people a lot of people, too, who have abortions and do those things from completely being irresponsible that has nothing to do with even um, not having the money or anything like that. They just don't want to, like some people would say be burdened with a child, even though they're doing things that they know could lead to to children. So I I think we have to address that too. And Mm -hmm. I think Christians should have the compassion and also um, be able to articulate that there are some things in the culture. Cause I'm not one of those people who think I'm not a cultural relativist. There 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 are things in everybody's culture that can be fixed and that they can do better So we have to we have to be able to articulate ourselves and be honest about the conversation enough to engage both of those. But I think when you talk about abortion right now to really crack down and cut in half child poverty would go a long, long way. And we need to be focused in on those policies while not saying that some in some instances, the culture in general, American culture, I'm not just talking about black culture, American culture in general, by not paying attention to the unborn, by not giving them value has taken the stigma away from something that should have a, a stigma attached to it uh, so that we know that it's not something that's desirable.
0: Yeah. So yeah. let me just challenge the listeners. As some of our listeners are on the left and some are on the right. And just whatever, wherever you're at, listener, I want to challenge you to absorb what can you be doing to push your own party towards a better way. So if you're on the left, like how do you bring in the the fact that the unborn babies should have value and how can you address some of like the the moral issues that Justin just talked about of women who are just having elective abortions because that are like avoidable and it's like they, they could make better choices.
3: It's just selfish. Or the and, men that or the men that yeah, uh, yeah. pressure them into doing it because they don't want to have a kid.
0: Yeah, and the men are oftentimes even a, a bigger driver behind it. And then on the right, like how can you move your party, or how can you in primaries choose and support candidates on the right who are going to, what you said with Mitt Romney, going to like deliberately try to find solutions that are broader than just criminalization, but actually get at the root of why abortion happens. And also, I think some of the fear on the left is that if if Roe was to be overturned, that women in general would over time have a lower and lower place in American society because more and more women would leave the workforce to have babies. More and more women would leave school and drop out of school to have babies. And as a result, you would have women in general over time would move backwards. And so like, how do you address that? How do you make it on the right? How do you, how do you address it? To, if you want to get rid of abortion, like how do you create a system in which women are not held back by the fact that that you're criminalizing it. Like you have to you have to confront that and address that. And there has to be more than just kind of throwing stones on the right in order to like find a solution that's actually gonna
1: well be just. And the other thing is I think that we need to grapple with the history of this country and how black women were introduced to this country, like the reasons, the purposes, being bred like animals. People wanna think that we're so far removed from that, but it shapes how black women are viewed. It shapes being able to see a black woman or a black girl as a victim and giving her the dignity of fr- of being able to be fragile and not strong and not having to absorb pain, you know, all this pain and, oh, she can take it, she can take it. And, you know, I mean, we're looking at a country that criticized a woman for, for having her arms out in a dress versus a white woman who has been completely naked on, on the internet and a black female vice president who it's being said by evangelicals that she slept her way to the top. Like let's get to the to the heavy of this because I think it starts with how we view women and how we view black women versus white women and how we sexualize black girl. Like we I think that before we do anything, we have to start with the conversation of how this country, views and, and devalues Black girls and women.
3: Yeah, I mean, we're going back to a human dignity conversation. Uh, are you treating people with their complete dignity? How has Hollywood and the media portrayed Black women in a way that perpetuates some of the things that you're talking about? Yep. And this is when you get into the space where I try not to make everything an ideological issue because so in, in many instances, you see these things come from a lot of different places and it's not just split down the middle. This side does this or that side does, does something else especially when it comes to how black women are, are viewed and, and the images that are put out there, there's a lot of places that we can talk about Hollywood, especially, which is not a conservative bastion, right? Right. Uh, that those, that, that those things aren't okay. Um, and so we, it's something we all have to work at work on. It's, it's a, it's about human dignity and we need to make sure that we're viewing people in the right way, but also that we understand, like you said before, the history and what we need to correct. Right. Um, It's not just about moving forward. It's understanding how we got to where we are past this prologue. How do we get to this place where uh, black women are viewed in this way, are treated differently by medical professionals, are put in, you know, in in tougher situations? We got to look at those things and we got to do our best to fix them. But again, I think we have to fix them together and we have to fix them in a way that's not just shifting, completely shifting the power. So, you know, so that we're you know, all we're doing is changing who's, who's treating who poorly. Right. Right. We need to make sure that it's a healing and not just a reversal.
2: Amen. Part of our conversation has been like, even Garnett was alluding to, you know, challenging our listeners to move their party in a better direction. And I think in my mind, I am like, I don't even know how to do that. For most of our listeners, I would just assume that, okay, I'm going to vote on the big elections most people don't vote like in the smaller like really outside of the right. presidential stuff, yeah the, there's usually not much turnout as far as, yeah, and then I'm thinking in my head, I know that people write to Congress like they write letters and emails and stuff does that does that actually do anything like is there a way to push the party forward without doing something, and I'm obviously asking that in a sarcastic way, but Like, I think that's what most people, they want to, they want to move the party forward. I want, hey, I want, and I think that's something that the and campaign you guys do are really great about. Like, hey, if you don't know your own party's issues, you know, that's an issue in itself. But I'm almost thinking, like, how do I do that? What would you say to someone that's just like, what's like the least amount of work I can do to make the party (laughs) <laughs> be better. I mean, that's really what most people For are thinking. Real. Is that even possible, or is it like, do I have to commit to being at every single city council meeting? I have to write an email to my congressperson, or just do I just follow them on Twitter and you know make hacks at them? I don't know. What what do you say to those people?
3: Yeah, I think it starts with an understanding that politics generally is not an individual endeavor, and that if you you all want to do make a huge change by yourself. Uh, it's, it's probably not going to happen, right? We all go into the voter box and vote by ourselves, but generally to be effective in politics, you need to do it in community. Uh, you need to do it through institutions. So it's not just you sending a letter to, to Congress, it's you and a thousand other Christians or something like that, sending a letter to to, to Congress. That's going to go a lot further than you just doing it by yourself. Um, and, and so we, we have to take the time to organize we have to, And we have to understand and, and start to value again our institutions. Uh, you cannot change politics or advocate in an effective way if you're not doing it through an institution that incentivizes certain things, that develops certain characteristics and has certain principles uh, attached to it. We've lost the value of that. Um, and, and, and partially because you know we don't have a lot of faith in institutions because we've had leadership in institutions that have failed us but that doesn't mean that we don't need institutions that doesn't mean that we don't need some semblance of of leadership as we go into this this space because i'm going to tell you the tr- i'm going to tell you the truth advocacy and changing things is hard it's not glamorous it's not it's mostly not stuff that you're going to see on instagram that's going to get you a whole bunch of likes it's hard work that nobody sees and we get so many people that come to us like i want to make a change i want to i want to run for office i want to do this But six months down the road, if it's not glamorous or, you know, they haven't got some big policy passed, then they're out. They don't want to do it anymore. Where if you look at the civil rights movement, we're talking about people who years and decades upon decades were working, doing things that nobody saw and still didn't get exactly where they wanted to be, but did push the ball forward uh, to a certain extent. People just have to understand that uh, uh, advocacy is, is boring. It's hard. And it's not glamorous. And a lot of people want kind of that social media advocacy where you can tweet something out, you can say this or that. And you really haven't done anything, but it makes you feel like you have because you'll you'll get people around you that are cheering and all that. But the true the true work is not not what people see. And you really have to be committed to it.
1: So my question is just kind of shifting it from how we engage in politics, you know, from your past pastoral heart. Like, how do you—because a lot of it starts in churches. Like, we know the history of, you know, the African-American church and how we've engaged in civil rights, human rights. But there's also the same—there's an equivalent to that in the white church. Like, the white church has, you know, especially in, in the day of evangelicalism where, you know, they rally around ca- candidates and, you know, they are primarily in one party. So if—I if, I believe that, you know, white pastors— and teachers can have a huge influence by following the leadership of black pastors because you're already doing the work. You're already where the marginalized are. You are already serving and loving. And how, what would you, like if you were speaking to black church, uh, white churches, white pastors, like that say they, you know, I want to I want to make a change. I want to, what would you say to them? And how can you uh, speak to them like, imitating you as you as you follow Christ in these issues
3: I do talk to pastors uh from a lot of different um, demographics about that very good question that you just asked okay and the first thing I would say to a majority Christian or white a white pastor would be there is something about the black church's approach to civic uh action that you should that you should study and there's there's some things that could very much benefit you yeah uh, and I think a lot of it's going to come from that Exodus motif, right? The un- understanding that God does care about what we do in the here and now. Yeah. And God is a liberator. Now, he's not only a liberator, and that's a whole nother story, yeah. but God is a liberator and somebody who cares about, uh, our, you know, he pities every groan, right? Yes. Um cares about what's happening to us. If he knows every hair on our head, he, he cares about what's going on yes. with us in the day to day. And I think the African-American church has, in a very good way, not separated that social action from the gospel, mm-hmm. right? Not 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 made this um, false dichotomy where you have piety over here and you have social action over here. If you ever get to it at all, right? That that there's been that combination. Now, not always perfectly, but certainly in a way that could really benefit in a perspective that could really benefit a lot of uh, white churches that have made that separation. Uh, those churches that I I tend to call pious bystanders, right? You're pious, but you don't actually engage. uh, And and you're not really the salt and light in many ways because you're not engaging. You're not touching uh, anybody and having having that contact with society. There is a lot to learn there. Uh, And, and you know, again, we have to humble ourselves to say these are some things that we can do better, especially when it comes to the civic space. And especially when you're talking about demographics in the white church that have, the social and political capital to actually make these changes yes. right, that have the ability and the resources to do something that have a major impact on their brothers and sisters from across the tracks. When God places something in our sphere of influence, we are poor stewards. If we just allow it to, to fester and continue to, to be, um, you know, uh, kind of rot with all this iniquity and, un- and injustice and unrighteousness, we need to do something about the things that are within our sphere of influence and the black church has been able to do that in many ways through civic action. And I think there, there is a lesson to be learned there.
0: Amen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think if the evangelical church together decided, like, here are things we are going to fight for in politics and created a platform that included a more comprehensive list of, like, everything that the Bible actually advocates for. Like, I mean, from, you know, both sides compassion and conviction including like care for immigrants which is like a huge priority in the bible 92 times i think the bible talks about like care and compassion for immigrants and that's listed as one of the reasons why sodom and gomorrah was destroyed in ezekiel and one of the reasons israel went into exile uh, was that they failed to care for immigrants and to like uh, care for the poor to like justice and uh, more order if we actually band together and did that then the evangelical church in America is large enough, including both white evangelical and the black evangelical church we're large enough that basically there would be the ability to actually change the political platforms and the political landscape from what it is so the fact that each party has some things that are biblical values but each party has major lacks that just directly go against a very like obvious reading of what scripture calls us to be shows that there's been like negligence on the part of Christians like this culpable negligence to actually like enact everything that the Bible says is important and I don't know I just want to like put that out for the listener to kind of like grapple with and and kind of push like what how do you listener come up with a framework that's not finding ultimate allegiance to a political party but is like about something bigger about God's kingdom that is more comprehensive and good.
3: Yeah, I mean again, it comes it, it comes back, it all comes back to Christians having a biblical view of things rather than a partisan or um or uh, ideological view of things. Now that doesn't mean parties and ideologies are all bad, but that can't be the core of how we view the world. Uh because when it is, we're definitely going to have some blind spots. We're going to be manipulated. We're going to be moved in areas that we that we shouldn't go. And I always say that, you you know, if you consider yourself a Democrat or a Republican, you need to be able to list at least five things on your side that they get wrong and really wrong and that you need to speak up again about. One of the problems that we're experiencing in the public square, even within the church, is that there's just a lack of credibility on both sides. Mm -hmm. Right. Because you won't stand up and say something about race. I don't necessarily listen to you when it comes to the sanctity of life, because I won't stand up and say anything about the sanctity of life you won't listen to me when it comes to things about race, right? Because I don't check my side on those things. You're saying, well, how are you going to check me? And you don't check your side on those things, mm-hmm. right? Well, there's a lack of credibility, so we keep missing each other. And I don't believe in the the equivalency. I don't believe in the uh, doing the both side But there's enough on both sides that we can all uh, take the time and, and really say, hey, this needs to be corrected. And what I think people don't get is when you correct those things, you don't help the you don't help the other side by correcting your side you gain gain credibility for yourself and you're able to address the other side in a in a in a better way Amen. that's what we have to see uh, and we just have to be intellectually honest in, in order to move forward with that
0: and i think it just moves us away from polarization that is like itself like a danger to our democracy it's like risen to such a high level that when we can like be voices against our own side it like is healthy for Like the whole country, yeah.
2: And and to follow up with that, we had one of our patrons ask this question. So I'm gonna I'm gonna ask what what they said, and then I'm maybe kind of reframe the question itself. They asked, "How can we disagree with people politically and respect someone's political opinion when their political opinion devalues individuals or entire groups of people we care about?" So I mean, that's like a pretty you know, there's like there's some stuff there, and I can I can understand what's being asked there, but Maybe we can talk about like what is a – can you help us out, help our listeners out? What's a respectful way to enter into a conversation about politics? And then maybe maybe what's like a helpful, respectful way to like end a conversation that maybe is someone's view on something is, you know, we really disagree. Or maybe they're just being crazy and really disrespectful. But like what, what's a respectful way – of jumping into a political conversation and a respectful way of like getting out of one.
3: Let's we'll start here. What did Jesus, what was his perspective about tax collectors? Who were tax collectors? Tax collectors were people who manipulated and exploited their own people. In many cases, who, who forced people into debt slavery. What did Jesus do when he met the tax collector? and, I mean, that's something we have to think about. So if, if if for the people that don't know that story, you need to read the Bible and hear that story. People have bad opinions. And so being able to have a conversation with people and be respectful of them is not to say that you agree with their opinion or that you're giving credence to that opinion. That's not what the point is, but they have human dignity. So there's something bigger there than just their opinion. And you need to be able to go into that conversation looking at, you know, looking at that human dignity and saying, you know what, I need to have some humility. The other thing that I point out is I can guarantee you that everybody listening to this podcast, there's a major issue that really affects somebody. That's their number one issue that that you don't, that you don't uh, address. Mm -hmm. I'm sitting here talking to you. I got a Nike shirt on. I got a Nike uh, uh, hoodie on. Do you know what kind of labor goes into what Nike does? Right. So so is somebody going to is somebody able to completely shut me off and not listen to anything I have to say? That's something I have to deal with. But there's always an issue that you're going to get wrong. And I think we have to ha- go into these conversations with a level of humility. Often we go into conversations about race and politics. Automatically in a posture of self-defense, yeah, automatically, I'm going into this conversation and I'm going to walk out faultless. Mm-hmm. I'm going into this conversation. I'm going to make sure that nobody can blame me for anything. That's not how that's not humility. That's not how Jesus, you know, interacted with people. We have to go into these conversations with a posture of or a spirit of self-examination and understanding that none of our narratives are pure. None of our narratives are, 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 are fully truthful. Right. Right. Nobody went up to Jesus and had a long conversation and walked away with their narrative intact. And so the idea that we think we can walk up somebody else with our narrative attack or we can look at them and say, thank God, I'm not that tax collector. I'm not that publican. Then I think we're missing a major part of the gospel mm-hmm. because somebody can get something wrong and still have a lot to give. You don't have to act like their bad opinion is good. You can tell them it's bad. Right. There's a certain way to do that, especially if you're going to be showing, uh, showing them love.
0: Mm-hmm. So a question we often kind of wrap up with is uh, just kind of want to give you a final chance to kind of speak from your heart to the audience directly. You got an audience here, I mean, some somewhere around 10,000 white people tuned in. What would you like as kind of like a speak from your passion, your heart, to like what would you want the audience to take away or know or like apply to their lives from this conversation?
3: The church, in order for the church to come together, um, white Christians in particular are going to have to address and, and really acknowledge this country's true history we can't, we can't keep romanticizing America's history once we've taken the time to do that once we have the humility to say you know what when you have people enslaved for hundreds of, uh, hundreds of years when you have race being used as a way to discriminate against people in the law for longer than it's been, way longer than it's been out of the law, that's going to have a critical impact on what's going on today. And those things linger for a long time. That's just how how life works. We have to be able to have the humility to engage that conversation and understand that it's not necessarily about saying who's at fault. Mm. And, I, and I said this the other day, it doesn't have to be your fault to be your commission. Hmm. So I'm one of those people that I'm not necessarily going because you even on my side of the conversation, you can go into these conversations and say, I just want to make you feel what I feel. I want to let you know how wrong you are. Well, if that's what I'm trying to accomplish, then am I really trying to help people or am I being prideful and trying to prove a point? Right. We have to understand that it doesn't have to be your fault to be your commission. But as Christians, as people who believe the great commandment, as people who are supposed to love their enemy as themselves, We have to be peacemakers and we have to be humble enough to say, I'm not always right. What can I do better and how can I help? And that's certainly what has to happen in this race conversation. I hope that we find the humility to have these conversations in in earnest and give our brothers and sisters grace so that we can walk through this conversation and, and heal this land.
2: We're going to send people to the and campaign. We're going to send people to the church politics podcast. We did a review on compassion and conviction these are all great resources we'll put on here, but is there anything that people can find you, people can read, listen to you? What, where would you point them?
3: Yeah, so you on, uh, on, on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Justin E. Giboney, G-I-B-O-N-E-Y, at Justin E. Giboney. Uh, you can also follow the And campaign on, on those two at, at A-N-D campaign. But I would really uh, you know, ask folks to, to read our book, Compassion and Conviction. And just see how the love and truth of the gospel come together start to understand why social justice and moral order aren't mutually exclusive, that they're actually interdependent and that those things work together, that if you don't have... Justice, then you don't have more order and and vice versa.
2: Thanks for listening to this episode. If you are looking for more information on what we discuss, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. If you'd like to play a supportive role in the podcast, for only $5 a month, you can vote for future topics, listen to unedited interviews, submit questions, and more. You can check us out on patreon.com/backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. Next episode, we'll be discussing James Baldwin. We'll leave you with this quote from Justin. Gibney himself. In politics, civility shows itself in respect for disagreement and in granting others the right to express it. Civility shows itself when we acknowledge the best in our political opponents' line of thinking and the best in our political opponents themselves. Civility is mercy and forgiveness. It is a form of public grace.